Welcome to this edition of Mountain Talk Monday. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood, and today I'm really excited to have our guest, Claire Snell-Rude, with the RAP Project, the Wellness Recovery Action Planning Project. She's a research assistant professor in the Department of Behavioral Science at the School of Medicine at the University of Kentucky, so that's a, a long title, but really important work falls under that title. You may have heard in recent news reports that our region has some of the highest rates of depression, and especially in women. The most recent statistic that I've seen is that we rank third in the entire country for depression, especially in this area. And I saw that 29% of us have been diagnosed with depression. And so that's just the people who have sought treatment. That's not the people who are flying under the radar. So could you tell us a little bit about your work and yourself and background? Absolutely. Thanks for having me here. Uh So I'm a medical anthropologist, which means I study health and illness cross-culturally. I've been studying depression among women in Appalachia for the past three years, and it's been really exciting to work with people here, in part because though there are really extensive problems here, there's also a lot of enthusiasm and really great capacity within the community to come together and figure out what's happening and figure out good ways to address those issues. What I've been doing over those past three years is try to get closer toward understanding how Appalachian women experience their depression. Because as you said, there are a lot of people who have depression who might not even identify as depressed. That's been one of the first goals. And then the second goal has been to take that understanding of how women understand and experience their depression and to use that to create additional programs to add on to the healthcare infrastructure here that are culturally acceptable to people, but also that are feasible and build on the resources that are here. So what we're doing this fall is we'll be doing a trial of this adapted evidence-based program called RAP, Wellness Recovery Action Planning. What does that entail? RAP is this program that comes from the world of care for individuals with serious mental illness. It's not often used just for depression. It's often used for people who identify as consumers of mental health. But the reason why we were drawn toward it is because RAP is a group intervention that's delivered by a peer provider, so someone who's not a specialist. We know that there aren't that many mental health specialists in this region, just like a lot of other rural areas. And we also know that many women prefer to be able to talk about their mental health with a peer, someone who's like them, who's not talking about their depression in specialized terminology. Another reason why we chose this program is because RAP doesn't use any mental health language at all. It's a program that's strictly about wellness. And in this program, participants will make their own wellness toolkit. They make their own plan of what works for them, and they build that plan over the course of a few weeks. And they do that together in a group with support from a group. Of course, it's a confidential group. The reason why we really wanted to do this 
program is because we thought it would really fit with the ways that women understood their depression, but also we could work with a very strong community health worker program that's already based in this region, and that's Kentucky Home Place, which is run in collaboration with the UK Center of Excellence in Rural Health. So we'll be doing this program, having community health workers facilitate it, facilitate these group sessions. So that to me sounds like a really exciting approach and I want to kind of take us later back to that idea of community supported care. But let's start at the beginning. How big do you feel like this problem is here? That's a really tough question because like you said at the beginning, there are the statistics. Then there's a lot of people who don't necessarily identify themselves as depressed. And even one thing that community health workers in the region have pointed out to me is that even if you ask questions as part of a depression screening, the way that people around here may respond, particularly older people, is that they'll give a positive answer even if they don't feel that way because they don't want to complain. (laughs) There have been community health workers who've said, to me that they'll know that one of their clients will have deep depression, but will say, you know, I just went on and did what I had to do. So that's one reason why it's difficult. Also, it's difficult because even women who recognize that they're suffering from depression and might have a sense that what they have could be depression, it's hard for them to prioritize depression just because most women have a lot going on in their lives. (laughs) They have a lot of responsibilities as women to take care of themselves, oftentimes to help support their families. And we also know that in this region, just because there are less resources, mental health is only one of many different health issues that people have to deal with. So when they finally do go into the doctor, if they're able to make that time for themselves, they have a lot of other things that are on their list that they need to address first and foremost. And so sometimes mental health just stays on the back burner, even if people recognize that it's a problem. So what a lot of people in the field of rural mental health research say is that people living in rural areas don't have mental health literacy. And I just don't think that's the case. I think that a lot of people living here know a lot about mental health and are very aware of their own mental health, but they just have a lot going on. So the question for us as community members and researchers is how do you make programming that can help meet people where they're at? I think about the resources that we have, and I'm pretty open about my own experiences because I firmly believe that the more we share with one another, the less stigmatized these things become, that we realize it's a more common human experience than we would imagine. I experience depression and anxiety both, and I have been medicated for them. I have sought counseling for them off and on since I was in my early 20s. And it's something that runs in my family, or seems to. And I think about my options here. And I've talked to my family doctor. I'm also dealing with some other chronic illness. And at first, when it came up this time, the depression and anxiety, I thought, well, is it because I'm feeling bad? You know, so you talk about these other illnesses that people are experiencing, and they think, well, maybe this feeling is coming from my illness. So they think if I address that first, then I may not feel so depressed. And then I think we have one psychologist in town here. 
and she's not able to prescribe medication. So she can recommend a medication and then you'll have to go to another doctor to actually get the medication and then go back to her to get the counseling that should be paired with the medication in most cases. I know it's found that that is the most effective approach, a combination approach. But I've talked to family doctors too that say they don't have the background in mental health to be able to provide the double approach and they just try medications based on what they're hearing until they find something that works. So you have people going back and forth between different medications when they're trying to find what will work for them. And it's a system that you've got to be very persistent with. Like you said, a lot of us don't have time. Like for myself, I have a full-time job. I have three children. They go to school. They have activities. I have a house to keep and pets and travel. It is very easy to say, well, I just need to deal with it. And you're right. We are taught not to complain. That we get our job done and we don't complain about it because that's what life is. What is your recommendation if you're experiencing depression? How do you begin to address it? That's a great question, and it's a tough one, too, because like I said earlier and like you mentioned, most rural areas in the U.S. are mental health provider shortage areas, which means that the vast majority of mental health care in rural areas, like Appalachia, is delivered through primary care providers. And research shows that though primary care providers are extremely committed to the people with whom they work, they don't have specialist training in mental health. And so oftentimes mental health is improperly diagnosed or perhaps improperly treated just because that's not the primary area of expertise of primary care providers. So primary care providers are on the front lines and they can be a resource for people, but ultimately we need more resources here. So in terms of the mental health specialist care that's available in eastern Kentucky, there is some that's available through the community mental health center setting. And many of the people there are extremely committed and provide great care, but there's also a lot of challenges to accessing that care. And many people fear accessing that kind of care because of the stigma of going to a specifically mental health specialty setting. People say, I don't want my car seen there. I don't want to go there. And it's too hard to get an appointment there just because there's a whole lot of demands that are on that system. I think that really the future of resources for people who might be struggling here are in centers like the North Fork Valley Community um, Health Center, which is based in Hazard. They have integrated care based in their clinic. So they have a primary care provider, but they also have psychologists and mental health specialists, social workers and nurses who are on staff. So that way you can get all your care in one place. And so ultimately, I think it'd be really great if we could see that model in more places in eastern Kentucky. And it's my hope, too, that we can also introduce new models like what we'll be doing this fall that will be other resources that people can add on to since the vast majority of care that people are going to get is medication through their primary care provider. So it's not a very satisfying answer. And we've really struggled with it because my collaborator, Fran Feltner, she said, you need to give resources to these women who you're talking to. And we've put together as many resources as we could, but there just aren't a lot of resources that are there. And I want to talk more about that. And I also want to talk more about what you have found in talking to women and the way that they experience depression. But first, I want to ask, 
why are we seeing such a shortage in mental health workers in rural areas? I notice we are getting more and more specialists every day. I see four specialists right now, and only one of them is in Lexington. If that was 10 years ago, I probably would not be saying that. So we are getting more specialties here, and why not mental health? My understanding is that part of it is that just that there aren't nearly as many people who are trained in psychiatry as in some of the other specialty fields. That's my understanding. So there's just less people to go around. Rural areas have a harder time recruiting from the few that are there. But there are, I will say, more and more models in which people are starting to ask, well, okay, fine, we can't get mental health specialists here. What are things that we could shift on to health professionals who are here, who might be in a different non-specialist role, like community health workers? And in other places in the world, community health workers do deliver therapy. It's something that really hasn't been done that much in the U.S. It's only just beginning to start. So by working with community health workers, we really hope that we can build this sustainable workforce for mental health in Appalachia Mm -hmm. over time. I know there's a lot of apprehension Mm -hmm. about someone who hasn't received formal training offering even a listening ear, let alone any kind of advice. We've been conducting story circles as part of several projects with the Culture Hub and Roadside Theater here. They created the Letcher County Play, and so they conducted story circles. And a lot of times in those really intimate settings with maybe six people sitting in a circle, each getting the same amount of time to talk, a lot of things will end up coming out. And we noticed while doing these that that happens and that people seem to feel better just having spoke. Then you also begin to wonder, what is an organization's responsibility or the person who said, yes, I'll listen, and even if they offered a little bit of advice. And we thought about maybe there's a possibility of community arts projects or making plays based on someone's mental illness and showing that, or even a show like this having someone on just to have a conversation about it. What are the liabilities in community members supporting one another in mental health? That's a great question. And it's something that we've had to confront with our research project too, because though our research concentrates on depression, you could imagine that we're reaching many people who are vulnerable and people are understandably very nervous about what that means and also bringing up ideas about suicidal ideation or intentionality, particularly because some of the same counties in eastern Kentucky that have these challenges with depression also have high rates of suicide. So I think that the immediate answer is to make sure that you aren't asking questions that if you uncover something, you won't ask additional questions that will take you to a place that you can't deal with it, that you don't have the training. That doesn't mean that difficult topics aren't going to come up. I think the the really crucial issue is once something is uncovered that is beyond that health professional's capacity, whether they're a community health worker or a social worker or some kind of other peer provider, just making sure to stop at that point and move on to other resources. At the same time, I'm also deeply unsatisfied with the answer to that question because it's something that I don't feel it's really fair to open up difficult reflections and pieces of people's lives and then shut it. One thing I really like about the program that we're doing is it's a self-management 
intervention, which means that people make, they define what the problem is for them, they define what the challenges are, and they define the solutions. So that way it's in somebody's own hands. And I think that that both protects the person and it also protects the facilitators as well. There always are outside resources like national suicide hotlines that I do think need to be integrated into any types of care. But like you said, I think there's a lot of work to be done to build additional scaffolding around any types of activities we have that are discussions of mental health so that we'll know how to deal with the difficult things that come up. I find that a lot of people are just afraid to start because they don't know what's going to come out. To me, it's not acceptable to be afraid to start because that leads to people just enduring their problems over time. And those problems don't go away. They become more chronic and more serious. And for that reason, there are in places like here, much higher rates of people being hospitalized at a much more severe trajectory point in their course of depression because they weren't able to take care of it earlier. So the question is, is how do we have early intervention so we don't wait until it's too late? Creating safe spaces, I think, is really important to put ourselves out there. I've chosen a very public space. I blog and make postings on Facebook, and I've chosen to be pretty transparent myself. But what I've noticed is that every time I make a more personal posting, I'll get two or three messages from other people in the community saying, I've experienced that too, and I thought I was the only one, or I've never been able to talk to anybody, can I tell you my story? And it feels good to be able to be that safe space for someone, and then at the same time, you think, how do I know what best to say back, if anything at all, or if I notice a pattern that seems scary to me, you know, how do I support this person? The only thing that I can think of is collecting resources before you delve into this kind of community work, collecting the resources that we do have and having them on hand Mm -hmm. so that you can share. That is the only thing that I can think of to best address those types of problems. Absolutely. And I think also there is this practice of mental health first aid, which is not my principal area of expertise, but the idea behind mental health first aid is to train lay people who might be starting these conversations, who might not be starting these conversations, but come across difficult things so that they have basic tools of what do I do in that difficult situation? What do I say? And what are the resources that I bridge to when I'm beyond that difficult moment. So I think that there's really a place for bringing such types of training here to really build a safety net and fill in some of the gaps. My instinct is that it's time. I think about our economy and how troubled we are just with that alone. And how can we pull ourselves up and Think of new things, have innovative things, innovative ideas. If we're not feeling like making ourselves suffer at night, or if we're not feeling like getting out of the bed in the morning, how do we have the thoughts that make a new and sustainable place to live when we're dealing with these issues? So the time is now to begin addressing these issues. And if we don't have the professionals to do it, 
we'll have to do it ourselves until we can get that resource. And that's just my thought as a community member and someone who has, being in the arts, regularly been put in that place. It seems like the arts tend to bring out moments that allow for people to express their inner struggles. Let's talk a little bit about what you found in interviewing women. How do we experience our depression? What does it look like? One thing that really struck me as we did these, we did a number of interviews in 2014, and then we've gone back to women over time. But one thing that really struck me was how much diversity there is in what the experience of depression is here in terms of who identifies with the label of depression and also how they deal with it, whether they seek treatment, find treatment to be extremely repelling, or for a lot of people, dabble in treatment over time because they're trying to find band-aids here and there to take care of it. But it's difficult to find the quality care that they need for all the times that they need it. One thing that has really struck me is that actually a lot of people are in treatment of some kind or another. And those who aren't currently in treatment have awareness of treatment and what it is. And that really goes in the face of what a lot of people say that people here don't know anything about mental health. Well, that's not true. There's a lot of conversations that are happening in families, between girlfriends, at workplaces about what are ways that people can feel better. I think that many people aren't able to get the full course of treatment that they need to recover. And that's really the rub, is that many people get some type of treatment at some point in time, but oftentimes because of issues of accessibility and quality, sometimes even negative experiences, they don't go back, even if they need to. And that, I think, is what leads to that common pattern of getting through it and pulling up your big girl panties and going. So that's one first thing that really stood out to me. I think a second thing that's really stood out to me is that women really talk about, first of all, their own struggles as women and what it means to be a woman and have all of the responsibilities that you do as women and how that contributes to their depression. It makes them stressed. It makes them tired. And it's hard to escape. So that's one thing. But at the same time, I was really surprised by how many women talked about the vulnerability of their other family members. They talked about their husbands and what they saw them go through. And they talked about their parents, both their moms and their dads. They talked about siblings and they talked about patterns that they saw in children. And though women often feel that they have to control their own feelings in order to protect their family members, women really empathized with a lot of their family members and how they saw their family members struggling to provide for them, even though it was clear they were suffering. So I think that that really shows that there's a lot of potential to reach out to families because women experience depression in unique ways and have a higher prevalence, but families also share many of the same risk factors for depression. I think some of it's genetic, but I think also some of it is certainly environmental. We had some women who say, you know, I've always been around depression. I know it because I've been through it. I know it because I've seen it. I know it's always going to be there. So I think that raises some questions about how stigmatizing can depression be if people know it's there even if there's not a public conversation, 
there's definitely a lot of reflection. And I think another thing that's surprised me is that a lot of women have, when they have found a listening ear, how much they have expressed appreciation for that. And I was actually truly surprised at how many women gave their time to come and share their experiences with us. I mean, I... Why would they want to tell their story to some someone from Lexington who they never met? And um, women were very generous in sharing those experiences. So I think all that says to me that if we are able to provide some kind of space, women have a lot to say and they want to share it. But the question is, is how do you make that safe space? Because every single woman I talked to said, to me, I'll tell you this if it helps other women. That's why I'm here today. That really moved me and that motivates me all the time. It definitely does. When I made my first post about my own struggles, I couldn't believe that I'd chosen to do that at first and I thought I'll take it down. And when I went back to take it down, I'd gotten my first response with someone thanking me for being willing to share that. And then I thought, well, if this helps that person, then it was worth it because what ultimately will I lose in sharing this? In fact, I could possibly gain a community of support and more understanding Mm -hmm. rather than people assuming what kind of mood a person's in or (laughs) uh, instead being offered support. But I want to ask how different do we here experience depression here in the mountains? Aside from lack of resources, is it different than women in urban areas? I think there are some similarities, and I think that there are some differences. Certainly, I think that the poverty here and the kind of lack of resources that are here definitely shape the experience of depression in a way that you don't see in urban areas that even if they are poor, have more resources. Not that I think that it's inevitable that people will be depressed, but people just here have a a lot to deal with and a lot on their plates. And like you said, it's a critical time, not only because it's time for economic changes, but how do we rise to deal with that? Another thing is just that there are a lot less mental health resources here than there are in urban areas. And I think that that just means that in many ways people deal with it for longer. And at the same time, I think that because there is a strong spirit of taking care of one's family, a strong spirit of not wanting to be negative, that can also make it more difficult to express the difficulties that one is going through. But I also think that, you know, some of the challenges that women specifically face here are definitely similar to urban areas. Women experience a lot of stress in providing for their families and caring for their families pretty much everywhere. I think there's always this fine line between, you know, wanting to show what's difficult in rural Appalachia, but also not wanting to make people here seem like they're totally different. Because a lot of the challenges here are people are suffering in some of the same ways. It's not some past psychiatrists who've written about mental health in Appalachia 
blamed it on Appalachians and said, it's the way that people raise their kids. It's the way that people live in poverty. That's the reason why they have poor mental health. And that's not okay, nor is it accurate. So I think that we have this fine line to walk in terms of wanting to draw attention to the issue, but also making sure to not pathologize people as different. There's a whole idea when working in a cultural institution, working with people who are invested in seeing our communities grow and thrive and rebuild, there's an idea that we should just lift up the positive things that are happening and not talk so much about these negative things. And I I agree to a certain extent. We should definitely highlight these positive things, but I believe that we also miss the opportunity if we don't talk about some of the things that are labeled as negative by mainstream media and we can then own the story tell it our own way tell how we believe we got to this point and then what we're going to do about it we can create our own narrative if we don't shy away from these things and maybe even affect the way the nation sees us and mainstream media starts talking about us. So I don't think that pushing that piece aside is, like you said, we've got to accept that, but in a new way, in a way that we can say, okay, it's not so bad. Absolutely. And I I feel like in terms of the ways that women were describing family, the experience of, of depression in their families, you know, they were saying, okay, fine, we're vulnerable because of forces that are beyond our control and because of the fact that we can't count on health care in the way that other people would. But maybe other people in our family are depressed, but we're looking out for each other. This isn't everything that we need, but we're there. And so I think highlighting those kinds of resources and, and strength is really important. Building social resources from what's already there within families and communities is the way it needs to be done. I think first accepting that it is a problem and talking about it will then help you to build solutions. Because once you've accepted it, then you can't just let it live <laughs> anymore. You have to start addressing it. Some new voices are joining our newscasts. I'm Becca Schimmel in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Glennis Board in Wheeling. Benny Becker in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Voices from across three states in the Ohio Valley. Aaron Payne, Athens, Ohio. I'm Nicole Irwin in Murray, Kentucky. Bringing you stories on the region's biggest issues. Covering economy and infrastructure. Energy and environment. Jobs and money in eastern Kentucky. The voices of a new regional journalism partnership called the Ohio Valley Resource. We We are are the the Ohio Ohio Valley Valley Resource. Resource. Coal-producing states are preparing for arguments next month in the case known as West Virginia versus the EPA, challenging the Obama administration's clean power plan to limit carbon emissions from power plants. The case has major implications for the country's policy on climate change. But, as Glennis Board reports, some experts and industry leaders say the outcome will not bring coal back. 
Coal from central Appalachia has been keeping the lights on in the U.S. for nearly a century. So perhaps it's no surprise that West Virginia's attorney general is leading dozens of other states, including Kentucky and Ohio, and many industry groups in opposition to the new carbon emission standards. During a National Press Club panel discussion earlier this year, Patrick Morrissey said the Clean Power Plan disincentivizes coal production. So if you can reverse some of the regulatory carnage that we've seen, then there is an opportunity to at least come back. Now, But while Morrissey is focused on derailing regulation, some in the electric utility industry say winning or losing the Clean Power Plan won't decide the larger environmental energy war. There is a shift going on because of re- for reasons beyond the Clean Power Plan. That's Charles Patton, chief operating officer for one of the largest electric utilities in the region, Appalachian Power, which serves parts of West Virginia, Virginia, and Tennessee. Patton told an energy conference audience at West Virginia University this spring that his company's dependence on coal-generated power will drop from 74 percent in 2012 to 53 percent in 2024. He pointed to a slide that showed how Appalachian Power plans to diversify its energy portfolio with gas, solar, wind, and battery technology. If you would have told me 10 years ago, six years ago, that this would be the slide that I'd have up for you, I wouldn't have believed it. Patton says utilities like his are diversifying their energy portfolios as the result of a variety of market forces. He says new technology is making renewable energy more reliable. There's an overall reduction in demand because of efficiency measures, and natural gas is just cheaper. And all that means that a coal comeback is just not likely, regardless of the legal challenge to the Clean Power Plan. Our current levels of coal, which are significantly down from where they were uh, eight years ago, six years ago, two years ago, um, there's not going to be an uptick with or without the Clean Power Plan. Professor and environmental lawyer from Columbia School of Law, Michael Gerard, also spoke at the recent energy conference at WVU. Uh, If a state or a region is not at the table, it's on the menu, and it should participate in the activities uh, leading toward a resolution and not just deny that they're going to happen. The federal clean power plan aims to stave off the worst predicted impacts of climate change by reducing carbon dioxide emissions by about a third by 2030. Near record numbers of Americans are now worried about climate change, according to the most recent Gallup polls. Patton says old paradigms are being challenged, and his company is reading the carbon writing on the wall. Once you get through the, the political morass, at the end of the day, Most Americans believe that there's something going on and that we need to take steps to address it. That belief is common not only among the public, but also increasingly businesses and also utilities. Oral arguments for and against the Clean Power Plan are slated to be heard in front of the entire D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in September. Any ruling will most likely be appealed and decided by the Supreme Court in 2017. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Clintus Board. In Morgantown, West Virginia. Ohio Valley Resource is made possible with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and WMMT. You're 
listening to Mountain Talk Monday, and I'm your host, Kelly Haywood, and I'm here today with Claire Snell Rood, and she is a medical anthropologist with the University of Kentucky, the School of Medicine there, and she has been studying for the last three years depression in women in particular in Appalachia, and she, along with her colleagues, is getting ready to launch the RAP program, which is the Wellness Recovery Action Planning Program, which is similar to a peer counseling program that allows the community to address its own needs while filling in the gaps of our mental health shortages. So thank you again for being with us today. I want to start this second half by asking what role does faith play? in how we deal with depression in the mountains. I know people always say, well, if Kentucky's 10 years behind the rest of the country, then Appalachian Kentucky is 20 years behind the rest of Kentucky in the way our culture changes. And I know it's been in my lifetime that women started having full-time jobs along with raising families, that we began to move more towards a nuclear family of a mom-dad kids rather than extended family all living really close, with more people leaving to go find work and then not coming back. Our culture has really changed, and I think it's done a pretty big part in breaking down our support networks, our traditional support networks. And I know one of those for a lot of people has been their faith or their church community. Whether or not they're in church, a lot of times faith plays a role. What have you found in your research? It's tough to talk about faith and mental health. In part, I think for the vast majority of women who I've talked to, their faith has been an incredible resource that they've held that's really gotten them through the fact that they can't access the care that they need. Some women would prefer to really rely on their faith first and foremost rather than pursue care in part because they're afraid of the costs of pursuing care. And I don't mean just monetary, but also the social costs. What if they share this experience in the community? They don't want to ask for that time away from their family. So I think that faith is an incredible resource for women. At the same time, I think a lot of people mentioned that They had some fear, too, about being open about their mental health in the actual institution or place of worship, in part because people were afraid to air those very intimate feelings in an open setting. Some people said that they were afraid that if they said something, then people would just think that they didn't have enough faith. They weren't grateful for what they had, or they weren't trying hard enough. So I think that there was also a lot of fear. That being said, you know, there are many healthcare providers, and I mean the full gamut there from community health workers to trained physicians to nurses, who said that they use faith as a tool in their interactions. I had one community health worker who told me, I might not be able to tell you about your medication. I can help you get some. I won't be able to give you a prescription, but I can pray with you. And I think that that kind of resource of providing a space and solidarity is really crucial. So in other places, I know of work that's been done to integrate faith institutions into mental health 
interventions and programming. And I think there's really a lot of capacity for it. I think there's also a lot of fear and that fear needs to be confronted. But I think that there's so much potential in part because the church is such a central social institution. But I also think that there's a place for having faith as an individual and personal resource for people who want to be able to use their faith but don't want to have to have their mental health be part of how they're known in church. It's interesting to me because I like to study spirituality in different faiths. Look at the connections and how we as human beings, each culture has developed their own relationship with the spiritual. And I was looking at some research that said that people who have faith in a higher power tend to be happier people. Would you say that that's true in what you've seen? That's a tough question. I'm not sure. I do think that people who have faith, it can be a really incredible resource for enduring. But I've also talked to many women who, you know, wouldn't say that they pray to God, but use many secular terms to communicate their faith and their endurance. So I think if you take a broad approach to faith in that sense, that that ends up being a really incredible resource for people. When I was doing some research for this interview, I came across your book, No One Will Let Her Live, and I saw that you had worked through that book, working with women in Delhi, in India, in particular women who lived in the slums there, and how they experienced depression and life in general in poverty. And I know we tend to look at places like that and think, well, it's worse than here. Someone told me in another interview a while back, we live in a very good place to be poor, talking about the strength of the community and community support. And I know some of us experience that differently. And I want to highlight what you experienced in India, because I think sometimes it's really good to put ourselves in the context of the world, and maybe it can help us see ourselves in a new way or understand the broader human experience. And so how do we compare? What are the experiences? One thing that I think is a really powerful connection between what I've seen and learned here in Appalachia and what I saw and learned in India is that both are places which are known for being very strongly family-oriented and having really strong social networks and extended families as particularly when there aren't that many state resources for health care, let alone a lot of resources for jobs. One thing that struck me in both places, though, is that there's also a very strong individualism on the part of women that is not talked about as much, but I think is very critical to the way that women experience their mental health and also make their own health decisions. Women really see themselves as connected to their other family members, but they also hold on to a strong sense of who they are, and they really struggle with that and reflect on that. One thing that that always (laughs) frustrates me when talking to people about the extent of poverty in in both the places I've researched, I think is that there's an assumption that in both places people are just surviving, period. That's it. 
And it's true. It's hard to get by. And that can't be emphasized enough. But I think by focusing purely on survival, that really denigrates the rich family and spiritual traditions that make people in both places really incredible, with incredible resources that need to be described. That doesn't mean that they don't deserve more from their governments, from broader society to help make them wealthy in the ways that other people are. But people do much more than just search every day to make things work. They provide something meaningful for their families, even if it is difficult. I know so many people in our communities have left, and those of us who are staying are finding a way to make do every day and provide for our families. And if not, most of the time, if there's the resources, we go. But even those who stay, they are making a way. I want to ask because a lot of times our poverty is blamed on people will say that we're ignorant or it's the type of people that we are or it's our social constructs our patterns of uh, social behavior from the time of the earliest settlers and we who live here know that that's just not true it's a very very complex explanation of how we got to this point and the generational poverty. What I want to ask about India is most of us in our social studies class have learned about the caste system. Is that still in place there and is that why some of these people are living in the conditions they're living in? Yes, the caste system is definitely still in place. It's in a much different form now than it was before. Technically, caste is outlawed by the Constitution, but there actually still are pretty complex laws in place now by which there are very advanced affirmative action programs to guarantee placement for particular castes which are seen as being disadvantaged. So there's this really bizarre reality in which caste discrimination is outlawed, but at the same time, caste of different groups is still very much counted and accounted for in programs. And also it's accounted for in everyday life, particularly slum communities. There is some caste segregation, but there's also a whole lot of diversity. One thing that really struck me about slums is that people come from all over the country in order to seek out opportunities there. And sometimes they come through their own regional social networks and family networks. Sometimes they also come through caste networks. But you see that caste and day-to-day life is lived in kind of strange ways because also in slum communities there's much more mixing and intermarriage between caste than you see in other parts of the country. You see a lot more what are called love marriages where people will choose their own partner and oftentimes choose someone who's not from their caste because there are so many different sub-castes within India. But you also see that Even despite that intermixing on a day-to-day basis, some of the lowest castes who are known here as the untouchable castes, and that's actually a, a group of a number of different castes who are classified in that category, those people who are called popularly Dalits, that's the term that they use to self-identify, they still experience extensive discrimination. They experience much higher rates of sexual violence, 
violence overall. They're excluded from a number of different occupations. Life for them continues to be extremely hard. I think of that example, and I know it's really hard to form a comparison, but since the early 1900s, the major employer here became coal. And now we don't have that anymore as a resource. And when we've spent now over a hundred years raising coal miners, you can go straight into work, make a very good wage without having college debt, and then that being taken away. And the conditions under which we worked, and, and we had to fight for the right to work in a safe place. And all of that history, thinking about us as being oppressed people, really. I call it sometimes in a way, especially in the early days, like we were in an indentured servitude. And so I see that as being kind of similar in experience. And I know my experience when I leave the mountains, I've had people who were my colleagues publicly make fun of me for my accent and ask me things like, do we have electricity here? Do we have running water? Does everybody wear shoes? You know, that kind of stuff is still acceptable. Whereas we're supposed to be living in a politically correct culture. But for certain groups of people, that's not the experience. And those kind of idealisms, I guess, are hard to change. Very hard to change. I want to talk a little bit more about the RAP program. I want some more details. How does the community get involved? Or is this something that the community can get involved in? And how do they reach you if, or the folks with RAP if they would like to be involved? With our RAP study that we're doing this fall, we're doing a small trial basically to see how will the adaptations that we've made to this program, will they work here? And is it something that will be comfortable to women? There will be two different groups that will be facilitated by two community health workers from Kentucky Home Place who are trained in this program. It's an evidence-based program. The first group will start in mid-September, and then the second group will start in early October. Both of these groups will run for six weeks, and one will be in the middle of the day, and will end before kids come home off the bus, and then the other one will be in the evening for women who might work and not be able to come during the day. Our research coordinator, who is based in Hazard at the Center of Excellence in Rural Health, you don't have to consider yourself depressed, but if you think you might have depression and you're receiving some form of treatment, so if you're taking some kind of medication or you're in some kind of counseling or have been in the last year, then you're absolutely eligible. But you can also ask all these questions to the um, research coordinator. Everybody who takes part will do an interview at the beginning and an interview at the end, and we'll be sure to compensate people for their time for participating. And then also because we know that it costs a lot to get around and put gas in your car, we're going to be providing gas cards for every session that women participate in. So for this first trial that we're doing this fall, we're working with folks at the North Fork Valley Community Health Center. So that's where we'll be having the wrap sessions for this specific trial. So it can make it harder for folks down in Whitesburg, but you are absolutely welcome. If you qualify for the study, we'd love to have you participate if you can come up the road. So that gives a little more incentive. While this is a first run 
to see what it's going to feel like and to see if it's a model that we want to keep using here. It's different than having to seek insurance covered health care, being compensated for your time and travel. So you're really participating, it sounds like, in something that not only benefits you, but benefits your community in terms of helping folks gather information about how we can start addressing these issues. Absolutely. Is there anything else that you would like to say or talk about before we end our show? Yeah, I'd say in terms of the RAP trial that we're doing this fall, I think a lot of people hear group intervention (laughs) and hear six sessions and think, oh man, there's no way I want to share something personal, let alone over the course of six different days. No way. (laughs) So I guess I would just say if you are struggling from day to day, for whatever reason you might be struggling, just give us a call and think about it. Just consider it. We are really hoping to create more resources for women in this region and resources that might help people in different ways than some of the existing resources do. So just give it a try, (laughs) even though um, it might sound a little bit funny to you at the beginning. That's part of building new creative solutions is trying things that might not seem obvious initially because we're really excited. This program has worked really well in other places and we feel that this would really build on a lot of community strength at this already here. And that's our goal. It's one of the most exciting things I've heard about in a long time and it piggybacks on a lot of conversations that I've been a part of in the community about how to address this without having the professionals to do it. It is very exciting to me and it sounds like we need some people who are willing to just step outside of the box and give something new a try. And I can say from personal experience, I've been in some group sessions like that before and the more you go, the first one may be a little intimidating, but when you come back, it's not so much. And the further you go into it, it becomes a very comfortable thing and very rewarding. If you're willing to just give it a try, you may find that you enjoy it quite a bit. Yeah. And I should say, too, that before the whole group program starts, all women will be meeting one-on-one with the community health workers. So they'll get a chance to find out more about the program and share some of their own experiences. So if you're afraid of the group, you won't start on the very day, first day with that group in front of you. That's great, too, to know that you can settle in. But we will provide the phone number when I post this on our website, www.wmmt.org. And it will be there under the Mountain Talk heading in Public Affairs. And you'll be able to find all the contact information there if you miss getting to write it down here. Claire Snell Rude, (laughs) I'd like to thank you for being with us today on Mountain Talk Monday. It's been an excellent conversation and I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Kelly. I really appreciate it. For more information on participating in the RAP Wellness Recovery Action Planning Program at the UK North Fork Valley Community Health Center, contact Wayne Noble at 606-439- 3557 extension 83656 or by email at wayne w-a-y-n-e dot noble n-o-b-l-e at u-k-y dot e-d-u we will be putting this information on www.wmmt.org for your convenience
Thank you for listening to our program. For more information, visit www.wmmt.org. This has been Mountain Talk, and I'm Kelly Haywood for WMMT. Real stories, real news, real people radio. I hope you have an excellent evening. Ever have a question that just nags at your brain? Why is there a siren that goes off in Whitesburg every day at 4.30? Is the city water in my area safe to drink straight from the tap? How do people in my town really feel about gun violence? Can I make money farming and still live in the mountains? You wish there was someone to ask, or that you'd happen upon the answer in social media or the news. Well, now you don't have to wait for serendipity. WMMT's Public Affairs Newsroom is offering a way for your questions to become the topics that we report on. It's called Central Appalachia Wonders, C-A-W. Just go to our website at www.mmt.org C-A-W. Then submit your question, and you might well hear the answer right here on WMMT. Dedicated to real stories, real news, and real people radio. This is WMMT. We want to know what you're wondering, so call at us today. <coughs> WMMT.org slash C-A-W.